Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. My name is Crystal, and I am the host of Stories from Palestine podcast, and also a licensed tour guide by the Palestinian Ministry of Tourism. Together with my colleague Salim, we are organizing three 10-day programs this year to discover Palestine. There is still space in the upcoming program mid-March, and also in June and October. We travel around the West Bank, Jerusalem and Jaffa with small groups, maximum 10 people. We provide historical background, we introduce you to the Palestinian heritage, and we make sure that you get to meet a lot of locals. We stay in family-run hotels, and we also spend two nights with Palestinian families. We do some short hikes, easy hikes, and during the October program, you can also join a day of olive harvesting. If you are interested, then check out our website for more information. I will ask Roberto if he can add a link to the show notes of the podcast, but you can also write it down. It is storiesfrompalestine.info. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and this is the first episode of a series of two dedicated to the presentation of Jerusalem Quarterly Issue 92, a special issues dedicated to Jerusalem's interrupted futures. The issue was edited by Palestina Ili, who also contributed with an article, and the guests today presented their work are Harris Ford, Semigo Catalai, Michel Campos, Yair Walak, who worked together with Julio Moreno Siruano and Maria Chiara Royoli, and Maria Chiara Rioli, who co-wrote an article with Vincent Lemire. We will also talk about the articles published by Ila Bappe and Javad Dukhagan, who worked together with uh, the uh, guest editor Fialestin Naili. This issue of Jerusalem Quarterly 
brings into sharp focus and elaborates on a familiar theme in writings on Palestine and on the condition of Palestinians in Jerusalem and elsewhere, a theme of lost opportunities, miscalculations, lack of vision, and unrealized plans. Plans that, however, existed. We are not here to talk about what if, or try to talk about plans that were just envisioned in the mind of some individuals. Inevitably, the responsibility for such failures and unfulfilled projects has been placed on the various powers that have colonized or ruled Palestine, as well as on Palestinian ruling circles and interests. In much of this kind of writing, the agency of ordinary Palestinians, whether individually or collectively, has not been given much prominence. So, the guest editor, Palestina Ili, frames the issue differently, starting out with the observation Focusing on unimplemented projects entails the application of a type of historical analysis and historiographical method which has thus far not been largely employed in the study of Palestine. And she goes on to single out the concept of the horizon of the expectation, designated as, uh, quote, that which is not yet, but is expected. What this means to Naili is... Uh, seizing elements of history, plans, projects, programs, and saving them from oblivion, so that new generations might base their understanding of their history on a more complete panorama of the past than that created by the victors. So we leave it to the readers of JQ and to the listeners of the podcast to imagine what this means as they contemplate the turbulent history of Jerusalem in the 20th century. What elements in the unfulfilled plans and projects examined in these two episodes, if rescued from oblivion, would be potential sources for writing a more inclusive history. How can the agency of ordinary Palestinians, whether individually or collectively, figure here, especially since much of the material historians use was produced by the victors? Another challenge facing Another challenge facing historians is overcoming the inevitable elite bias in archives. How can we identify potentialities that were unrecorded or unrecognized? Is the history of Jerusalem only available through the writings or records left behind by Palestinians with a voice? Either as religious leaders, educational elites, intellectuals, planners or entrepreneurs? How do we begin to effect a shift in the balance between the victors and the vanquished. Keeping these challenges in mind is necessary as we revisit Jerusalem past futures. The ways in which the city was at various points imagined as a future hub of Palestinian economic growth, educational opportunity, representative government and human connection. It can be tempting to feel nostalgic about the paths not taken, to yearn for a time when other futures seem likely. So we must keep in mind that all the plans examined today in this podcast, any in Jerusalem Quarterly 92, were also embedded in structures of inequality. None was the panacea that would have cured or staved off Palestinians' past or present ills. Yet, Returning to the ways in which Jerusalem future was variously imagined at different times in the past can also help correct against an analysis of the past events that is overdetermined by the present. Not only were different futures believed to be possible, but the outcomes of decisions whether to continue or abandon certain plans or projects 
were never fully known in advance. This was indeed a long introduction, but a needed one. And now I would like to start uh, engaging in a conversation with uh, first the guest editors and then with the contributors of Jerusalem Quarterly 92. So I want to ask Palestine, first of all, about uh, the idea of producing a special issue of Jerusalem Quarterly dedicated to Jerusalem's interrupted futures, or in other words, the paths not taken. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about the rationale. How did you start working on this idea? How did you develop uh, the idea? And how you start thinking about what might have been the project that could have been discussed in a special issue of the Jerusalem Quarterly. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about uh, your personal path to the idea of the Jerusalem Interrupted Future, is also explaining to us what Jerusalem's Interrupted Future means. And in the end, if you have uh, enough energy left, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the idea of uh, counterfactual history. Is it worth to think about uh, what if related to Jerusalem? I know many historians would uh, simply disregard that, but here we are talking about uh, projects that, that in fact existed uh, and they had a possibility to be fully developed. So we need to talk about also the agency of individuals who chose different paths for Jerusalem. But first thing first, Palestine, welcome. Thank you very much, Roberto, for, uh, for inviting all of us to this conversation. Um, I mean, first of all, I want to, to thank the Jerusalem Quarterly for giving us this opportunity um, to develop these, uh, these ideas and, um, and thank all the contributors to, to answering the, the call for papers um, with such incredible um, contributions. Um, for me, the whole issue of Jerusalem's interrupted futures, I mean, I've come to call it interrupted futures, um, came up basically um, by, the, by the fact that Jerusalem is very much shaped by facts on the ground. Um, I mean, this is what all of us know on, on various levels, right? Um, as lived experience or, uh, or as historians or uh, social scientists dealing with the city, we know that this is a city that is fundamentally shaped by, by facts on the ground, by facts of domination and um, dispossession and various levels of structured violence against the city's Palestinian inhabitants. And so um, I think this is um, a realization that uh, is in stark contrast with what we can read in the city's history when we're attentive to what appears um, in, in documents that are often silenced or, or not properly exploited. Um, and I think this is really something that comes out rather powerfully in all of these pieces. Um, I think all of us had had glimpses um, of various past plans that had existed for the city uh, were they from the Ottoman period, from the Mandate period, or from the Jordanian period? Um, myself, having worked on the Ottoman municipal archives for a long time, um, I had come across plans for parks and also plans for the tramway, which I'm so happy that um, Michelle Campos took up. Um, and then, um, through my colleague Dawad Durgan, 
uh, I discovered the existence of this comprehensive urban plan that existed for the eastern part of the city that basically was to shape, was intended to shape the city after the 1960s. And this, this of course, never came to pass. Um, so there's a number of issues that, that made me realize that it was important to unsilence these archives in particular and to um, bring them front and center um, after them having been sidelined for a really long time. And this is really a question also of making the historical record more complete. And I think this is what all of these pieces um, do in a really, in a really powerful way. I was just wondering, you know, perhaps, you know, given that obviously you know all of the articles very well, being the editor, if you made up some sort of ideas about uh, what if, what if uh, even any one of these uh, unfulfilled projects, and one of them, the light rail, eventually, you know, was built, but in a very different context, actually came to be completed, or what if a parliament had been open? What uh, you know, if not just the Hebrew University had been open. I mean, do you think unfulfilled projects determined the unfolding of history the way eventually it went, I guess? Well, I think um, all of these articles speak to potentials that existed and speak to agency that existed maybe in places where um, it is often um, not really showed in a proper way. And I think this is, this is the, the major um, contribution of, that all of these articles make. I mean, we realized that there was a real big effort, for example, to create uh, uh, the parallel of the Hebrew University in, um, in Jerusalem. There was a real effort to create an Arab university um, to answer all of the needs that that um, that existed, and to answer all of the ambitions that existed also um, at that time, and so um, I think this is this is one of the one of the um, important elements that comes out in all of these contributions is that there were um, that there were well thought out plans for um, other outcomes. Um, there was also an immense amount of potential. Um, and uh, I think this is also important to realize. I mean, this is something that um, I, uh, I also find comes out rather powerfully in, in Maria Chiara, Rioli's contribution. Um, the whole issue of, you know, what also individual contributions could have been to the future of the city. Um, so, yes. Um, for, for me, it's a matter of interpreting these elements of history that have been silenced and of allowing them to, to speak for themselves. And I think this um, happened on various levels in these papers. Let us now move to the articles. And the first authors I would like to uh, uh, welcome is Yair Wallach. Yair co-wrote his article with Julio Moreno Siruano, and today is discussing the unbuilt parliament, British colonial plans for a legislative assembly in Jerusalem. Yeah, here, please. Okay, thank you very much, Roberto. So uh, this article started when I came across uh, photographs of the model 
<coughs> of the building that was supposed to house the legislative assembly. Uh, the photos were published, uh, you know, uh, I think on the 13th of May, 1948. So just two days before um, the end of, uh, or even one day before the end of the mandate and in a totally different uh, new stage. And I thought, I found, I mean, the, the, the photographs were so striking that here was a, a real building, a real plan that uh, didn't come to be built, uh, which I have never heard about. And then I started, uh, we started to dig out uh, the material and what has been written. So this was uh, um, um, part of a larger project that starts um, already in 1922 to build a dedicated purpose-built um, central government headquarters, motivated by uh, considerations of efficiency and cost saving. Because uh, the alternative for that was for the British to hire to rent um, buildings all across the city. It made everything much more complicated and, and, and was expensive. And this was clear from the uh, very beginning. That dragged on for various reasons throughout the 20s and becomes again more serious towards the late 20s and particularly in the 30s. And then, only then, uh, this uh, is combined with the ideas to establish a legislative council that would include elected uh, members by Palestine's uh, citizens, uh, uh, Arabs, and uh, Jews, and it's a it's an initiative that um, gradually uh, progresses uh, throughout the first five years of the 1930s, leading to um, you know the uh, a public announcement that this is going to be British policy, and this is going forward in end of 1935 and which is um, more or less accepted by the Arab side uh, and totally rejected by uh, the Jewish agency. And then is uh, completely uh, torpedoed in the British parliament and goes nowhere. As a result, the building, which already had a model and quite, uh, uh, you know, a lot of planning into it, never gets built. Then we have several other stages uh, that it, you know, um, somebody, uh, one British official uh, compared it to a jack-in-the-box. So it goes in, it goes out. So in 1939, again, there's a very serious effort and even a t tenders are issued and they're about to go and start, uh, you know, building and then the war starts. And perhaps more surprisingly, it's after, it's during the war and after the war, where again, we see a very serious attempt on a much wider scale to build this on a, a magnificent site, which uh, after after 48 in the 50s and 60s becomes the site of the mansion of the Israeli president, because it is it by then it's state land and it's it's empty. So that's the the topic was uh, specifically the legislative council hall as part of the central government uh, building, and the kind of considerations that uh, went into this and the kind of planning and what does it say. I think there's a number of uh, interesting, interesting things here that we wanted uh, to highlight. First, there's been some 
discussion on the Legislative Assembly um, offers. It's not the first thing people think about when they think about the Palestine mandate. Uh, it's probably not the second or the third or the fourth or the fifth. You know, it's somewhere, so some people know about it. It has received some treatment, but generally it doesn't feature, uh, the, you know, in the big histories of the mandate, we talk about violent events rather than this, which kind of was a very serious proposition in some moments. So, and, and to combine that with actual architectural efforts, with money paid for these plots of land, with a, an immense effort by all these um, people to make this, which never, you know, never uh, led to fruition. I think that was interesting because this allows to uh, reinspect the political line, timeline and to, and we offered some kind of new perspectives that, you know, that maybe uh, question, uh, for example, how seriously should we take the white paper suggestions, which I think we should take it at least on the British side more seriously. Um, second thing I think which is interesting because this is a thoroughly colonial initiative. And I think that's the interesting thing that it's only, it's a very high level colonial, colonial officials which are, you know, a privy to these discussions. Uh, on the architecture, on the very fact that uh, a, a legislative council hall is part of this. So it's an entirely a British colonial intervention. So we're not very careful not to celebrate it as some kind of a lost um, potential for democracy on something else, because this was a very top-down uh, initiative that... Um, you know, that was, uh, I think, a diktat from above. And you can see, I think, the, I mean, I think the British were kind of, uh, there's some kind of contradiction there because they knew the building like this has to serve the local population, but they didn't want to include the local population as part of it. So how do we treat this, which is a, in a way, a kind of a, something that didn't happen and could have been significant, but at the same time, this was a co completely colonial intervention, even if we think about it, uh, you know, in retrospect as a, some kind of a, you know, a lost opportunity in some ways. Um, thirdly, I would say, I think what's interesting is the whole, to understand the mandate through this, and I think there's something self-effacing about the British mandate and British presence in Palestine, there's very few things that you can point to and say this is British or this is the British mandate. And I think it's telling that the um, uh, High Commissioner's mansion, which is maybe the most important, you know, architectural intervention, is a UN headquarters today. It's out of sight and people can't visit it. So you have, so the very, you know, presence, historical presence of British power is not there to be seen. And I think to, it's interesting to think, what if we did have that building in the very center of Jerusalem? We do, we can't speculate, but I think it would have been much more difficult to ignore the colonial role in, in shaping, uh, you know, the history of Palestine, including until uh, today. And I'll stop here. And... Uh keep talking about uh, the late-minded period and certainly talking about uh, top-down approach. 
I would like to introduce Harris Ford. Harris wrote an article called, I won't say I wanted the job, the United Nations search for a special municipal commissioner in Jerusalem, 1948-1949. Harris, can you just summarize for us and the listeners the contents of your work? Absolutely. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Roberto. And thank you, everybody, for, for being here, as well as Jerusalem Quarterly, for um, allowing this publication as a as an early scholar getting um, getting this article in here was was quite remarkable. So so thank you, everybody, for for allowing this to happen. Um, yeah, so I what I looked at is um, was part of my part of my master's thesis. Um, on the proposed um, internationalization of Jerusalem, which is this big clunky jargony word, which basically means elevating Jerusalem out of the partition plan that the United Nations had through through UNSCOP, um, that there would be a Palestinian zone and a, a Zionist zone, and then this third international zone that was around Jerusalem. And this had been discussed previously specifically around uh the time of ottoman capitulation in in world war one um so it's mentioned in in sykes picot briefly it's mentioned in the hussein mcmahon correspondence um and it just keeps gaining a little bit more and more momentum as time goes on as jerusalem takes this um takes this role of of higher responsibility specifically in um in christian imaginations as well this the religious importance of the city gets gets promoted a lot and the in the protection of of holy sites as well becomes becomes very important uh, for people at the um at the united nations but also it, during the league of nations and throughout the mandate period and what i focused on for this article was the special municipal commissioner for Jerusalem, which was the United Nations attempt to install a mayor for for Jerusalem, for this internationalized zone that had not yet happened. They're being preemptive. Um, so very similar to what uh, Yair was just saying, um, this all happened about a week before May 15th. Um, there was a flurry of activity at the General Assembly where there were resolutions and votes and um, it was decided that they wanted a Quaker to to be the special municipal commissioner, um, and this was for supposed neutrality um, in with the ongoing unrest and the suspected unrest. So the United Nations also figured out here pretty quickly that their partition plan was going to cause unrest, so they wanted somebody neutral in there, and they and they chose an individual named Harold Evans to to be that person um he was a, a lawyer from philadelphia and he was chosen without any palestinian input whatsoever no there was no consultation with palestinians for this uh the arab higher committee was was consulted but this was primarily um a united nations um and zionist venture um have this um and Harold Evans did not really want this job. He was not the first choice, um, but he was he reluctantly took this on, took took this responsibility on. Um, and he ended up being in Jerusalem for a total of three hours. That is how long he was um 
he was there for he went to Cairo and and spent a little bit of time in Cairo waiting for a ceasefire because due to his Quaker morals of um passiveness would not enter Jerusalem during any any conflict whatsoever so he was waiting for a ceasefire and um he he only went for um for 3 hours on a uh, on a trip to other cities um around the Mashriq um and after visiting Jerusalem he saw that it was not going to he was not going to be of use um uh, there was not going to be a ceasefire and so he stepped down um and the united nations was made to scramble and and figure out what what all was going to happen um and i think it's just really important to to remember um that this was immensely a top down enterprise um the united nations was operating um under imperial ways of being with all of the member nations or the main member nations uh, being former imperial powers. And this was an early opportunity for the United Nations to make a stance um, on the international stage of intervening in an international conflict. But what the United Nations did and what the UN, what, what I argue is that the UN created a problem and then tried to solve its own problem as well by having... Um, by having someone of their choosing run Jerusalem. Um, and with no no Palestinian consultation, and it was pretty clear that um, Arabs broadly, there was a mass homogenization of Arabs throughout this whole process by the United Nations, um, including with the special municipal commissioner. Um, and Zionists were not happy about this either, because it was an infringement on sovereignty um, of, of the new Israeli state as well to to say nothing about the continued um infringements of sovereignty on on the Palestinian nation as well um so this was in this was in 1948 uh this this happened in May and June of 1948 and then it was decided in September of 1949 that they were going to try this again because if it didn't work the first time why not do exactly the same thing and see if it would work a second time so they chose um, chose a man from Colombia named Alberto Gonzalez Fernandez, um, and he lasted nine days on the job. Um, he was active in the General Assembly in in discussions, and it was decided he was going to be the one. Um, and he took a quick look at the situation and saw that it was not going to be feasible. Also, so um, he had nine days on the job, and after that. The United Nations dropped the the idea of a special municipal commissioner. The the discussions of the internationalization of Jerusalem lasted into the early 1950s. Um, there were still there were still mentions in pretty serious mentions in 1954, um, particularly by um, Arab governments outside of outside of Palestine. Um, but the special municipal commissioner in this role was mostly May and June of 1948, and then for nine days in September of 1949 as well. So the the big thing for this is that um, in terms of interrupted futures of Jerusalem is this was not going to solve anything. This was not going to make Jerusalem a, a, a city of peace 
moving forward, that this was an interrupted future that the United Nations saw for itself. And it was solely a UN venture. There was very few um, on, on the ground um, of, of people in Palestine who, who saw this as a feasible way forward at all. Um, so this, this was not a future that was coveted by Palestinians, by, by people um, in Palestine. This was solely something coveted across the ocean in, in New York State at, at, at the newly formed United Nations as a way to really stamp the authority um, of a post-League of Nations world. So, It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. What the United Nations may have been planning for the future of Jerusalem, obviously the reality of war changed that reality and Jerusalem was divided uh, between East and West. So obviously the West controlled by the newly created state of Israel and the East under Jordanian rule. And that's here that I want to bring the next uh, guest, Maria Chiara Rioli, who co-wrote the article with Vincent Lemire, Archives and Potentiality in Jordanian Jerusalem, 1948-1967. Chiara, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what the article is about and also what do you mean by archives and potentiality? Yes, thank you, Roberto. Thank you, Felicine, for adding this so important um, issue of Jerusalem Quarterly. And thank you uh, to Jerusalem Quarterly for this opportunity. Our chapter um, focuses on different kind of questions, mainly related to archives, but not, not only to, on that. 
Um, the main issue is um, the questions around if historians can narrate the potential history also of uh, Jerusalem during the Jordanian period, and how um, this potential history uh, is different, differ from that traced for the late Ottoman and the Mandate period. And then we move to uh, general um, questions related to archives as spaces of possibility. And then we dig also into a specific case, uh, a quarter, the Al-Magadiba quarter that we know all was raised um, during the night of 10, 11 June 1967, and how to see the history of this specific neighborhood during the um, Jordanian period, not only as a period of pre-destruction, uh, so not only to be analyzed under the somber light of 1967 events, the war and destruction, but also in its, its own history during that period, the time of refoundation, restoration, of course, conflicts and tensions. So through these different kind of uh, questions, we try to open up uh, new uh, sources and records that are um, coming up for historians through different kind of projects and efforts by institutions or individuals, as Palestine uh, Nailin was saying during uh, her introduction, specifically related, for example, to the um, Jerusalem municipality archives and uh, uh, the Arab municipality in, uh, in Jerusalem from 1948 to 1967. So this collection is now available also in the, in the description of minutes. So these are all new tools for historians to analyze this uh, this period. Of course, there is a larger scholarship uh, on, uh, on Jerusalem during uh, um, the Jordanian period. Uh, I just remind the, the, the work by uh, Kimberly Katz and how she uh, unpacked uh, the ways through um, which the Jordanian monarchy government tried to Jordanize Jerusalem from 1948 to 1967. Uh, while choosing to not make Jerusalem the capital of the kingdom um, and also privileging Amman, but also highlighting the, of course, uh, um, Palestinian opposition to Jordanian rule, and at the same time presenting uh, uh, Jerusalem as the holy city. So these multiple ways to consider Jerusalem. And uh, uh, there is much more, of course, than that. And uh, uh, other historians contributed to uh, to unpack the multiple ways of uh, through which Jerusalem changes during this period. And uh, um, archives uh, are a way to discover these potentialities. So um, this is a, a way to, um, to dig more into the question of what if that you raised, Robert, in your introduction, and also to um, consider the issue of future and imagination. So these futures interrupted uh, that we all uh, uh, try to uh, unpack and analyze uh, through our contributions is also issue, of course, of imagination. During our chapter, in our chapter, we also remind uh, some new contribution to scholarship on that. For example, the the work by uh, Jill Ochberg and uh, we mm, and her way to. Um, to explain that to fight also the archival fatigue we all experience as historians in Jerusalem of Jerusalem 
And to make archives actually matter for what they are, uh, we need to develop an, an altogether different approach, uh, relying also on imagination, future vision, playfulness, creativity. So this work of imagination is a matter related also to the work of the historian. And this is a, another way to consider the archives. And uh, um, also in our chapter, we deal with the archives related to refugees, specifically the Uru archives, and how they can con be considered as um, archives of potentialities for, for Jerusalem too, not only for Jerusalem history, of course. And uh, this is also a way to uh, link this um, issue to the following two issues of Jerusalem quarterly, because you know that uh, um, the, the next issues related to, I mean, published by Jerusalem Quarterly will be around UNRWA archives, uh, co-edited by Francesca Biancani and me. And so this will be another way to continue um, the reflections raised in, um, in Palestine Ali that did it, uh, issue. Thank you. Keeping on the question of uh, Jerusalem under Jordanian rule, I want to bring in now not just uh, the editor of the special issues, but also the author uh, of an article that she co-authored with Javad Dukan, the 1963 general plan for Jerusalem, the unrealized vision for the eastern part of the city. Palestine, you mentioned this plan earlier, which somehow triggered the uh, the birth, shall we say, of this issue. Can you tell us a little bit more about this plan and also why it was eventually unrealized? Was it just because of the war of 1967 or there are other factors that should be taken into account? Yeah, so this article um, is really, uh, first of all, due to Jawad Dukhkan, who had the wonderful idea of bringing this plan to my attention um, when uh, when we were collaborating on another of other projects in, in Amman. And um, so this 144-page comprehensive urban plan of uh, East Jerusalem was commissioned in um, 1963 by the um, Jordanian municipality of Jerusalem and by the Jordanian government um, from a, um, a, uh, an office for, uh, for urban planning uh, that was based in New York called Brown Engineers. And um, it's a comprehensive plan in, in the sense that it really addresses all aspects of uh, daily life um, in the city. So there's stock taking about the state of transportation networks, uh, the educational system, the health system. It's, it's an incredible um, stock taking of a particular situation in the early 1960s in East Jerusalem, which, as we all know, after the division of the city in 1948, um, was in a very, very bad situation, um, cut off from uh, vital infrastructures um, in terms of water, etc. And um, so for long years, and, and this has been uh, documented notably by, by Hanin Naanme, who's, who's worked on the Jordanian municipality of Jerusalem or the municipality of Jerusalem during the Jordanian rule um, of the city. Um, and so this 1963 
plan signals that there's a change in perspectives, I think. It was a moment when the municipality wanted to take uh, a more proactive approach and wanted to go beyond just solving uh, immediate uh, problems that were presenting themselves and trying to really develop a vision for, for the eastern part of the city. And of course, that vision um, had to be articulated also with the place of the city within uh, the Jordanian state. And so uh, clearly there's also the issue of what status the city is supposed to have compared to Amman, the Jordanian capital, and, and what role should be attributed to, to the city. Um, and, and Maria Chiara has, has rightfully um, pointed to Kimberly Katz's work. Uh, McDumper also has, has worked on this. Um, what we try to do in the article is, is point to the concrete ways in which um, this, this uh, plan tried to address certain concerns that existed um, in the city in terms of housing, for example. So there's a whole plan for um, new residential neighborhoods to evolve um, in East Jerusalem um, with, a, with a real sense of uh, the lack of space and, and how to most efficiently use that space so that people can be housed um, in, a, in a dignified manner. And, um, and what's also interesting is to compare these um, these plans from the Jordanian period to British Mandate um, era plans, because there's a there's a certain similarity in the overall approach to the city. Nonetheless, uh, we can see this uh, vision of the city as a as a holy place, as a as a garden city. Also, I mean, this recalls uh, other uh, urban planners, namely from the from the uh, British Mandate period and their approach. Uh, to the city, which which sometimes um, yeah gives real preeminence, of course, to the to the symbolic status of the city uh, over uh, the needs also of the the city's residents. And um, yeah, I think it's a it's it's a very interesting um, moment. It's a sort of snapshot of, of a moment when the municipality of, of uh, Jerusalem and, and the Jordanian government uh, tried to really plan ahead. Um, but then the war of 1967 um, came. And so in, in, in that moment, all of these plans were, were stopped. So the plan had been voted, um, had been accepted in 1966 and in 1967, it was finally discarded. The next guest and author is Semi Gokatalai. Semi has written an article, Fair Competition, the Arab Fair in the mid-1930s Palestine. Semi, the stage is yours. My article in the special issue is about the Arab player that took place twice in mandatory Palestine in the mid-1930s. I compare it to other fairs in the Middle East and the Balkans, especially the Levant Fair in Tel Aviv, because it was another gathering in the same country. All these fairs in Palestine and elsewhere had two major functions. First, they provided venues for governments to propagate their political messages and ideologies and cultivate better diplomatic relations with other countries. 
Second, this fares from an economic perspective, generated income for those countries, although these benefits were mostly conferred to merchants. I analyzed the added fare from business, propaganda, and international perspectives. Given the limited time and sources devoted to it, the Arab fair can be considered successful because Palestinian Arabs stage their own business gathering for the first time in mandatory Palestine. As course of exhibitors and visitors from other Arab countries visited Jerusalem during the fair. Nonetheless, in terms of the number of exhibitors, visitors, international participation and continuity, the Arab fair lagged behind its counterparts in the rest of the post-Ottoman world. I argue that the main reason behind this difference was the absence of official support for the uh, Arab fair. When we look at other fairs in the Middle East and the Balkans, we can see that the government officials generously endorsed their own affairs. Even in the case of the Levant Fair, which was a private enterprise organized by capitalist Zionists, the British helped its organizers in various ways. But the colonial government in Palestine and the central government in London encouraged the participation of sellers and buyers in the Levant Fair and provided several intensives to any participants outside Palestine. The Arab Fair, however, did not enjoy such support from the British. Accordingly, the absence of governmental support prevented the Arab Fair from taking place after 1934. I think even this interruption should be evaluated from a comparative perspective. The Plovda Fair in Bulgaria, the Izmir Fair in Turkey, and the Cairo Fair in Egypt were likewise interrupted at some point. But the encouragement of political elites and their determination revived these fairs eventually. When we look at other examples, we can see that fairs were initially small-scale and local meetings, just like the Arab Fair. However, unlike the Arab Fair, the collaboration between governments and business people turned these fairs into international law and financially successful uh, spectacles over time. Their host cities like Izmir, Thessaloniki, Cairo, uh, and many other examples in the Balkans attracted tourists, new business connections, and foreign capitals thanks to these fairs. The interruption of the Arab Fair, however, prevented Jerusalem from having such economic benefits both in the long and short terms. Thank you so much. The final guest presenting our work is Michel Kahn. Michel has written an article, The Jerusalem Light Rail in Historical Perspective, Urban Transportation and Urban Citizenship Between Ottomanism and Apartheid. The Jerusalem Light Rail service eventually opened up in 2011 under completely different circumstances than originally was for under the Ottomans. So I'm curious to hear from Michel how this project changed throughout time and also or the potential overlapping between the original and, of course, the realized project. Thank you so much. Thanks to Roberto for having us here, and thank you to Palestine for editing this wonderful um, special issue of Jerusalem Quarterly. Um, this article tries to take a long-term view at the failure of urban citizenship in Jerusalem through the lens of the light rail. 
And as Roberto mentioned, uh, the light rail was actually implemented, probably the only one of these projects that um, actually came into realization, although in a very different way. And, um, you know, I remember back in 2011 when it first opened to great fanfare. And, you know, of course, as an Ottomanist, I was angry that they ignored the Ottoman past of these light rail plans. I was offended on behalf of the Ottomans. And I think you, you, you've also written about the kind of, you know, the erasure of the Ottoman past through the first train station. Um, and so there's a way in which this moment of Ottoman modernity at the beginning of the 20th century uh, is erased and replaced with uh, this kind of new global um, story of Israeli modernity. So that was one part of it. Uh, but I had also written briefly about the railroad and my or the tramway plans in my first um, book in which I was looking at the efforts of a number of urban boosters in Jerusalem of different religious groups, um, you know, Muslim, Christian and Jewish uh, businessmen and local leaders and elected officials who had united around uh, trying to secure a concession for this first plan of a tramway and of um, electrification of Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, since then, of course, we've had wonderful articles uh, by um, Soterios Dimitriades and Yasemin Avja that looked at the light rail within the context of the Ottoman archival documentation. But what I really wanted to do in this um, in this article was to think about the context of the light rail in the Ottoman city versus the Israeli city through this lens of uh, the failure of urban citizenship, as I mentioned. So what I tried to do in the article is to look at a few ways in which um, kind of the Ottoman city was very different and what facilitated the, um, I guess, the uh, support for these plans of a railway, uh, both in terms of the sentiments of urban identification, of being Jerusalemites, that that was a, an urban identity that transcended religion to a certain extent. Um, you know, you certainly had members of the different religious groups who had a long tradition of serving on the municipality, uh, as well as other local um other local councils, the administrative council, the general council, um, as well as, you know, being uh, as well as, as voting for members of the parliament in Istanbul. So this idea of uh, citizenship in terms of voting rights and representation and decision making as being something that uh, transcended religious uh, community was something that was a part of the Jerusalemite tradition and part of this kind of Ottoman uh, Pax Urbana, we can say, as, as uh, Nora Lafi has called it. Um, we also had, of course, this tradition or this uh, constellation of uh, merchants and urban boosters um, and local officials uh, who had strong social network ties and who came together uh, through this, uh, you know, Palestine commercial society, through the Freemasons, through the municipality, um, and through other institutions and informally to try to promote the development uh, of their city, to modernize it, to try to uh, bring it in their mind into the 20, 20th century at that point. And what I, you know, what I tried to do also was to show the ways in which these early plans uh, were trying to speak to and to service a city across its geographic and its demographic boundaries at the time. And there were a few different proposals uh, in the Ottoman period. I, if, I'm not, if I'm not misremembering, I think there were three different um, uh, proposals uh, from uh, 1909 until 1914. Uh, and the geography of the tram, the proposed tram lines changes in these in some very interesting ways. Uh, but we do see even from the first proposal that the, the tramway lines were envisioned to service the needs of all of Jerusalem's residents and of all of Jerusalem's 
visitors, right? So there were uh, residential areas and commercial areas that were being covered or that were proposed to be covered. Uh, there were religious sites that were important to Muslims, Christians, and Jews that were all on the tram line. There were educational institutions and other governmental institutions that would have been covered by the tram line. Um, and so this was part of this kind of shared Ottoman um, urban citizenship that I think is really important. Um, and this notion of also, you know, the tramway as serving the public good and this notion of the public uh, as encompassing and transcending these different religious communal boundaries at the time. That, of course, changes <laughs> very dramatically uh, from today. And so, um, you know, today we have, of course, uh, this tram line um, and we have I think, 10 different tram lines that the, that the master plan um, has proposed in Jerusalem. Uh, in the future, only one of those tram lines is actually envisioned to service the Palestinian population of East Jerusalem. And that's, I think, one of the later tram lines that will probably never get built. Um, and what we see instead is that the current tramway reflects um, so many of these longer term transformations in terms of uh, both the urban segregation that uh, began certainly in the Ottoman period, although even the later tram proposals uh, would have serviced these more exclusively or homogeneously Jewish neighborhoods. Um, they were not being excluded from the vision of the city at the time, the way that Palestinian neighborhoods are excluded from the vision of the city today or from the um, geography that the municipality and that the Israeli government find, you know, feel is their purview. Um, so the, you know, settlement patterns, but also the access to uh, different parts of the city and the, you know, absolute segregation of the city is, is one of those really significant changes that was important. Um, of course, the municipality is a very different municipality. Uh, even the shared municipal uh, model of the Ottoman period very quickly deteriorated in the British period, as I'm sure all of us know. Um, and in the 1920s, the municipality itself becomes uh, sectarianized um, and there are even proposals to divide the municipality into a Hebrew, i.e. Jewish municipality and an Arab one. Um, and this was something that I found in terms of thinking about the interrupted futures or missed opportunities. I think most point small section of thinking about the role of uh, David Yelin, who was a council member in the Ottoman municipality and a kind of perennial failed uh, candidate for Ottoman for higher Ottoman parliament. Um, who himself, by the early 20s, supported the division of the city into a Hebrew neighbor, into a Hebrew municipality and an Arab municipality, um, even though he had been a representative of this Ottoman uh, urban plan. So I think part of it is that this is not just, you know, a division between the Ottoman period and the current Israeli period, but it's looking at the ways throughout um, post-Ottoman and even into, you know, some of these transformations begin to take place in the Ottoman period itself of changing the city, changing its uh, geographic landscape, changing uh, the demographics of the city, uh, and changing the politics of urban belonging uh, in very dramatic ways. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of this question of interrupted future, futures, I think there are multiple interruptions along the way or along the, the, the rail line, so to speak. Um, and um, many moments and many factors that contributed to uh, why we have uh, such a very different vision and urban model when we finally do have a tramway in Jerusalem today. Uh, it's, I think, perhaps the opposite of everything that was envisioned uh, a century ago. Um, 
So I think, you know, that that's part of what I was trying to do is to really interrogate the, the series of transformations that the city uh, has, has seen. With Michelle, we now ended the first part of this episode discussing the articles published in Jerusalem Quarterly 92, especially issues dedicated to Jerusalem's interrupted futures. I must note that uh, Ilan Pape, who contributed with an article, Why Only a Hebrew University, the Tale of the Arab University Mandatory Jerusalem, was not available for the interview. However, it is possible to find hints about this discussion in the previous episodes of Jerusalem Unplugged, where we discussed briefly this question. The second episode of the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem Quarterly 92 will be dedicated to questions I prepared for the authors. So, first of all, I want to thank all of them, starting with uh, Palestine, Maria Chiara Rioli, Harris Ford, Semigo Catalai, Michelle Campos, Yair Wallach, and also the missing authors that couldn't make it for the recording, Ilan Pape, Vincent Lemire, Javad Dukhagan, Julio Moreno Sirwano. Thank you, and stay tuned for the second episode dedicated to Jerusalem Quarterly 92, a special issue Jerusalem's Interrupted Futures. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks and I'll see you next time. 